The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics and life. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I am very honoured to be joined today by Michael Schellenberger, who is an author and a political campaigner. Michael, you sadly, as far as the Americano podcast is concerned, you, you are not going to be the next governor of California. You lost to Governor Gavin Newsom, or you lost the primary recently. Commiserations on that. Well, don't rub it in. I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought we'd get that all a bit out of the way first. I think you should say I'm the bronze medalist of California gubernatorial competitors. Well, it was a very audacious campaign, and we, we think you deserve you. better. But let's talk about California in a bit. I, I want to start by asking you about a subject you write quite a lot about, which is energy. And clearly America is in a grave energy crisis, as is quite a lot of the democratic world. And you feel, do you not, that Joe Biden is aggravating the crisis rather than addressing it. How is he aggravating it? How could he resolve it? And why do you think he is not taking the steps to resolve it that he could take? Sure. Well, yeah, I mean, this is a very interesting subject that's been badly covered by the media. The conventional story is that Biden is kind of helpless. There's not much he can do that, you know, sure, he'd love to produce more petroleum and he's doing his best. But the problem is that Putin invaded Ukraine. And besides, we need to move away from fossil fuels. That's sort of the conventional wisdom. But when you actually do research on this, like actually talking to people that work in the oil and gas industry, and I've been interviewing senior executives at large publicly traded energy companies and at the banks that finance them, they tell a totally different story. They say, actually, you, you can increase oil and gas production in the United States. And your listeners likely know we have abundant oil and gas reserves in the United States in the form of shale in particular, but also offshore. There's abundant oil and gas globally. As an interesting side note, the Russians actually think that oil and gas is not a fossil fuel. They think it's uh, produced by the core of the earth. It's a minority view, but nonetheless... This idea that we're running out of oil and gas has been disproven. There's huge amounts of oil and gas in the world. So they really don't need, there's no physical reason for any shortages. It's just a matter of, of people and equipment. And what you discover is that, you know, Biden and the Democrats, of which I was recently one, have suppressed oil and gas production in a myriad ways in the United States. But that there's other, there's other ways that you can very quickly ramp up production. My sources tell me that within 12 to 18 months, we could be producing significant larger quantities of oil and gas. And that they're not doing what they need to be doing in order to do that. In fact, they're proposing a new tax <laughs> on oil and gas industry profits, which would repress production even more. They just canceled a major 1 million acre potential oil and gas uh, uh, lease area in Alaska, 
And in March, they announced the cancellation of a refinery license in the U.S. Virgin Islands. And refinery capacity has been one of the key problems, key bottlenecks to producing more oil and gas. So when you actually look at what they're doing, they're not trying to produce significantly more oil and gas. And the, new, and the mainstream news media have totally failed to cover it. And I don't think I'm going out on a limb to speculate that the reason that they're failing to properly cover the story is that they hate fossil fuels. They don't want more fossil fuels. They're, they're apocalyptic about climate change. And they think that this crisis is a way to accelerate the transition to renewables. I mean, if that's true, that's pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Because the crisis is so grave now and it's <laughs> crippling Biden's yes. presidency. It's going to mean that he finds it very hard to get reelected. It seems an extraordinary act of self-sabotage. Yeah, it's an amazing story. I mean, it's one of those stories where when you kind of put it all together, you go, I can't believe nobody's talking about this. You know, and part of it is that people, it's so taboo to just say that the oil and gas industry might be correct when they say that they could increase production. I mean, it's a funny thing because, of course, the oil and gas industry is doing great right now. Mm. I mean, they're making buckets of money. So there's a funny thing, which is, you know, so you kind of go, well, why, why would the oil and gas industry really want to increase production? You know, and you kind of go, well, obviously, if the economy goes into recession, then they're, you know, they would see declined production. So they do have some interest. And, you know, the short term, it would be short term profits, you know, but the amazing thing is that the people that really have an interest in expanding oil and gas production is just the public. Like it's mm. us. It's not just that we pay a lot more at the pump because everyone pays attention to that. And that's why it's a political issue is because it's because you go to the gas station, you know, or what you call the petrol station and you fill up and you are shocked by how much money it, it costs. But, you know, we've been shielded from the electricity price, the big electricity price increases for a little while, though they're coming here. Britain is taking it on the nose hard, all of the UK, and your fertilizer factories are shutting down, which is bonkers. Your factories are closing. And, you know, not it's not going to happen here or in Britain, but there's going to be famine this year. This is very serious. And that's, you know, largely due to Russia's invasion of Ukraine, but it's also going to be due to fertilizer shortages and higher costs. So this is a massive story. And I think that there's just this taboo to actually report what is the honest truth of it, which is that we can produce more oil and gas and we should. Even if you really are like climate is one of the most important issues in the world, most people that think that they don't think like that means that we should all go into global recession right now. That's not a sustainable path. They would think, well, you got to have a gradual transition to EVs. So you got to produce more oil and gas in the short term. But these guys aren't doing what they need to do to increase oil and gas in the short term. I mean, the I pointed out in my article yesterday for Substack, the American Petroleum Institute has named because, you know, after I published, people were like they were like people just denied it. They were like, oh, it's not true that we could produce more oil and gas. And so I, I amended the piece to describe what we would do. But the American Petroleum Institute, which is the lobby group for the oil and gas industry, they have a 10 point plan. My sources say basically it's three things. Invoke the National Defense Act, which will enable the acceleration of the required permits for oil and gas projects. 
announced a commitment to refill the strategic petroleum reserve at a floor of $80 a barrel. That's a big incentive for the oil guys. And third, announced trade agreements with the international community to supply them with LNG, particularly just this international community just means, you know, Europe and Asia, mm. while also protecting our own gas reserves. But I mean, everyone's trying to get off of, of Russian oil and gas, at least Europe is, I should say. Uh, there's been more cheating by Asian nations, and certainly India and China will take all that Russian gas, at a, oil and gas at a discount. Mm. But nonetheless... And this is something that I've been pointing out for months now. We need to be helping our European friends to replace their dependence on Russian oil and gas with American oil and gas. I mean, obviously, Europe is going to be it's a global market. So I mean, you're going to be supporting, supporting your oil and gas from elsewhere. But but this is our duty as Americans to increase our oil and gas production. Well, instead, what's going to happen, it looks like, is Joe Biden is going to go to see Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. And we presume he probably wouldn't go there unless an agreement was already in place. We presume that after that, the Saudis will agree to to pump out a lot more oil. But that's sort of, again, quite self-defeating from an American point of view, because the, the story of the last two decades, the positive story for America in, in many ways, has been that you have become energy independent, that you there are geopolitical advantages to the fact that America now doesn't need to rely on Gulf states for oil. But we're sort of right back to square one and almost worse than ever. Yeah, and I should say, too, because I think there's a lot of misinformation on this. I mean, there is a global market to a large extent on this issue, which is I want to respond to what you said. But Mm. let me unpack this for a moment, because I think there's a lot of confusion on it. Let me start by saying something overly simple and slightly wrong, but nonetheless has a truth to it, which is that there's a single global market for oil and gas and that. Yes, countries trade with each other, but prices are set internationally. So if the United States cuts off oil from Venezuela, Venezuela finds somebody else to sell to, and then they buy a little bit less from somebody else, and the prices kind of stabilize. And so you, it's interesting because it's kind of like a semi-cartel situation, you know, like you can control prices to some extent. OPEC used to be able to control prices. They can still have an influence on prices, but a heck of a lot less now, particularly thanks to the United States oil and gas revolution. So that power to control prices is much lower. So so then when Europe says, well, we're going to Europe and the United States, we say, well, and Japan, we're going to stop taking Russian oil and gas and we're going to get oil and gas from somewhere else. There's a part of it that is true in the sense that they will stop buying oil and gas from Russian oil and gas companies. There's a part of it that's not true in the sense that if Russia just sells more oil and gas to China and India and China and India buy less oil and gas from the people that Europe and the United States are buying oil and gas from, then you haven't really done anything long term. And indeed, that is what's going on. In fact, Russia, we now know that Russia has basically totally financed its war on Ukraine with higher oil and gas prices. And so Russia is selling its oil and gas at 30% discount to the global price because of the punishment and the sanctions from Europe and the United States. But it's more than made up for by the significant increase in prices. So anyway, so that I think that explains some of the nuance here that there is, you know, because sometimes this gets politicized where, you know, free market folks kind of go, it's all just a single market. But then you kind of go, well, but it does matter for the United States to be able to produce its own oil and gas. And if push comes to shove, 
the United States will quite rightly help our allies in Europe and Asia to maintain their economies with oil and gas through deliberate national policy. But that doesn't mean that there's no international market as well. Mm. You touched on electricity earlier, but um, another thing you're interested in is nuclear power. And particularly in California, I think there is a would you say there's a similar hostility towards nuclear power as there is towards the fossil fuel industry? Well, it's a really interesting question, Freddie. So in fact, it's a subject of my book. So I'm working on two books right now. One is called The War on Nuclear, Why It Hurts Us All. And it's about the efforts to get rid of nuclear power plants, nuclear energy in particular, as well as the broader effort to get rid of the nuclear fission used for energy, but also for weapons since the their invention in World War II. And then I'm also working on a book that is the third book in my series on civilization and the way that civilization undermines itself from within. And the first two books were Apocalypse Never in San Francisco. And the, the third book is going to be about the broader attack on the institutions of civilization. So you can see there's a theme of my work, which is I'm very interested in why why civilization undermines itself, why the most liberal members of civilizations try to get rid of the institutions that are necessary for civilization. And not only that, but these are the heirs to the creators of civilization. So why is it that the heirs to the progressive tradition, which built our power plants, our highways, our psychiatric hospitals, why did they then flip mid-century, 20th century, to then undermining those institutions and trying to get rid of them. And so what you can see is that this war that has been on natural gas is a more recent version of the war that was against nuclear power plants that starts in the 1960s. And in some ways, they're all part of the same movement to undermine things like police stations and to get rid of police stations in the United States. This is the defund the police movement. I see it as a single nihilistic instinct on the part of the radical left that then sweeps up more moderate members of the left coalition, which includes more mainline liberals, who then get swept up to saying, yeah, yeah, we should shut down those power plants. We should not have a natural gas pipeline. We should not have a police station. That's all a single rejection of the institutions of modern life. So anyway, that's a long prelude to your question about my interest in nuclear my interest in nuclear started very narrowly around this question of why, if we care about climate change, are we shutting down nuclear power plants, which are the single largest source of zero carbon emissions power? And where that's taken me is that the folks that are trying to shut down nuclear power plants, the people trying to shut down natural gas power plants, trying to shut down natural gas power production, their central concern is not climate change. They're just using climate change to dismantle the institutions of civilization. And upon coming to that realization, I found myself both fascinated and alarmed by this instinct because it's obviously very troubling because it, you know, on the one hand you go, well, these are just a bunch of kids shutting down a pipeline and what's the big deal? We can move the oil and gas on a train rather than on a pipeline or who cares about a nuclear power plant? Nobody cares about nuclear power plants. Aren't they kind of dangerous anyway? But what this gets us 
Is a Europe unable to deter Vladimir Putin when he wants to invade Ukraine? So Vladimir Putin knew perfectly well that if Europe did not have sufficient nuclear power plants to power itself or sufficient natural gas production, that he could invade Ukraine with no consequence of significance, I should say, or at least no sufficient consequence to deter the invasion. And that's what we've seen. And not only that, it's even worse than that, which is that he could invade Ukraine and turn a profit while doing it, turn a profit on the suffering of millions of people. So this is uh, chilling. And I think it should be a wake-up call that this effort to shut down our nuclear power plants, and by, by our, I mean in the United States and in Europe, and in Taiwan, for that matter, is not innocent. It's quite dangerous that the implications for it include climate change, but go far beyond climate change to get right to the question of a nation's security and protection from being invaded. Well, that's a very interesting answer and very interesting what you said about civilization, which would bring us on to what I want to talk about in a bit, which what drives this self-defeating, self-destructive impulse in Western societies? What's behind it? Well, thank you for asking that question. That's why I was looking forward to speaking with you is uh, you want to ask the right questions, the deep questions. Why would the richest people in the world who have really achieved it all. I mean, look at our lives. Looks like you have a nice garden in your background. <laughs> you this know, is our office. We live in this incredible infrastructure. You know, if you've ever traveled to developing countries, you never appreciate civilization until you leave it. If you visit the Amazon or Central Africa, and there's amazing things in those places, and they're beautiful places, but they're rough, difficult places. And you come back to civilization, you really appreciate creature comforts, you appreciate the physical security, the national security, the protection from violence, running hot waters. And so civilization is so precious and so fragile and so recent, you know, that you have to kind of go, why in the world would the main beneficiaries of civilization want to undermine it? And yet that's what's going on. You know, and I look at, you know, one of the groups I'm very interested in is Extinction Rebellion. This is the famous climate group in Britain that tries to shut down trains successfully, shuts down trains, wants to shut down, they want to shut down airports, they want to shut down the infrastructure of society, ostensibly in the name of climate change. But what I became so interested in Extinction Rebellion, in Black Lives Matter, and in other groups is the ways in which it's really so negative. You know, I'm a Gen Xer, so I came of age in the 80s and I was on the radical left. I was, you know, and then after that, I was very progressive, I would say. But we always had a utopian vision. You know, the, the slogan was another world is possible. You know, to which, you know, Margaret Thatcher famously responded, there is no alternative <laughs> to modern capitalist society. But, you know, the idea was socialism, or if you're an anarchist, it was sort of small, you know, local anarchist governance. Or if you're an environmentalist, it was the ecotopia. You know, everybody working on farms with solar panels and chicken coops. I mean, it was hazy, but there was a utopian vision. Well, that's like gone now. 
I mean, you get to Extinction Rebellion, and it's like, it's just a bunch of people holding up signs being like, the end is near, shut it all down. Or you listen to Greta Thunberg, and she goes, we just have to stop using fossil fuels now. Well, I mean, you're talking about just grinding civilization to a total halt. I mean, it's insane, actually. It's actually a kind of insanity or a psychosis where you kind of go, or, or we're just going to not have police officers. We're going to abolish police. And then you're kind of like, how's it, what do you, how are you going to govern after that? Like, how are you going to prevent people from like, let's say murdering each other? Well, there's no answer. And, you know, and so what's interesting, Extinction Rebellion, they're not actually spending that much time advocating for renewables. I mean, there's people in Britain that advocate for renewables, but it's not Extinction Rebellion. And Black Lives Matter, you know, like it was the old, remember the old Oscar Wilde joke about the left was, you know, I would be a socialist, but there's too many meetings. You know, the left, they would spend time in these boring meetings talking about how they were going to govern society. I mean, as Karl Marx and the, the early socialists, they would spend time on this. These groups don't spend any time on this anymore. So where is it coming from? And the punchline is that I think that basically Friedrich Nietzsche was correct in the genealogy of morals when he asked a very similar question, which is what is motivating the ascetic person? I mean, really the priest, but the person embracing asceticism, embracing self-sacrifice and suffering, there is will to power in it. It feels good. The priest is getting something from suffering, from even from self-flagellation. I'm going to do with less, but then I will get some feeling of power from it. And then, of course, that's magnified and intensified in the early 21st century with social media. So you then get the social rewards. You become a celebrity. You become Greta Thunberg. You become you get millions of Instagram followers. Yes, and so that becomes the the nihilism has never had greater social incentives than it does today. So you think we're sort of living in a world where there's a perfectly awful cocktail of nihilism and narcissism? You said it perfectly. Yes. You, in fact, I w- I was playing. I've just been I've been working on the title of the book and. You know, I think that um, I don't want to say exactly what it is yet because I'm a little superstitious, but those are the two words that definitely I think narcissism is hugely is the huge. I mean, Christopher Lash put his finger on this in the 1970s. He was the great late cultural critic. He was a socialist in his economics, but a conservative in his view of culture. And so, yes, you said it exactly right. It's the the toxic marriage of narcissism and nihilism. Perfectly said. Well, in your brilliant book, San Francisco, Why Progressives Ruin Cities, you explored this quite a lot. And the way in which do-gooding has turned into actually destroying perfectly civilised places. And homelessness is a big theme, but also drug use, and now increasingly we see rising violent crime in American cities. I think we're mostly British listeners on this podcast. I'm not sure British people are quite aware of how bad things have got in places like San Francisco and Los Angeles. 
there's some talk at the moment that things are, might be about to get better, that there's been a sort of moment of realisation in some of these cities. Are you very gloomy about it? Do you think, obviously you ran to, to be governor, you wanted to change it, you want to change it yourself. Do you think there is a, a possibility that these cities, these great American cities, can reverse this, this drift towards decline? Yeah, great question. And I, I should say, too, you know, the only country that has a higher overdose death rate from drugs than the United States is Scotland. And so for Brits who want to see what it's like here, you can just go, what is it, up the road? Or do you have to fly there? <laughs> you, can, you, you can drive. You can. The roads are still working just about, if you can afford the petrol. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You can just drive up the road and go to Scotland. It has a terrible crisis and for the exact same reasons, which is just the breakdown of social order and the unwillingness to have any consequences for addicts, really the coddling of addicts mm. who, who need tough love, not coddling. I would say that what, what is improving, and, and I'll take some credit for it from the book and the run for governor, is the discourse is improving. There is some recognition now that you need to enforce laws, that you need some tough love. Tough love was a word. I don't know if that's a word used in Britain or not, is it? Yeah, it has been. Tough yeah. love? It's, it's across, the, across the Atlantic, yeah. Yes, it's a very... Tough love was like a, was a proper like a social movement in the United States in the 1980s. And I really love the word. The word itself is considered too harsh by progressives, which tells you something. But the mayor of San Francisco used the word tough love in December when she announced a crackdown. When I was running for governor, I, I would say tough love basically just describes, I mean, if you have to choose a single word, because you know it's a neologism, or should be, that it's a com combination of, of two words, that's basically how I would describe what we need to, to, to have, which is the idea that you do need love but you also need discipline and you need law enforcement and you need structures and you need some amount of coercion when dealing with people with addiction or, or other psychiatric disorders or illnesses. And so have things improved? Well, what happened shortly after the mayor, so we, we built up quite a, you know, a public campaign to get San Francisco to clean up its act. And that culminates in the mayor in December calling for a crackdown on the open air drug dealing, the open air drug use. But within a month, basically, it had all gone sideways and it had turned into a supervised drug consumption site in one of our big downtown plazas, which I was the first person to expose and report on. And in fact, Daily Mail actually was did a pretty good, they published a bunch of my articles on it for whatever reason, the Daily Mail was interested in the story. So they wrote it, they covered it a lot. That has been a total disaster where they allowed supervised drug use inside a city operated facility in a plaza, like in a public plaza behind a chain link fence. And it was, you know, I'm not against supervised drug consumption sites. They have them in the Netherlands, but they're in a broader system to encourage people to get psychiatric care and drug treatment. And this one was just a kind of if I can say shit show on your podcast, it was a shit show, just a mess and badly done. And so you had an open drug scene that then kind of spiraled outside of the area because they basically had de-policed the whole area. You know, when you interview homeless people on the street, homeless street addicts, 
and you and you say, you know, how would you describe the situation? They themselves will say lawless. Like it's just laws are not enforced. So it did not happen. Here we are, fast forward to June 16, six months later, and yesterday the city announced that they would be shutting that thing down at the end of this year, that it would have been a year long experiment. It's obviously failed miserably. Now, the big news, of course, is that we, they, the voters recalled the district attorney of San Francisco, who is a very radical left person who also had stopped prosecuting laws, stopped enforcing laws. There may be another recall of a district attorney in Los Angeles in December, and the composition of the Board of Supervisors in San Francisco has changed slightly. On the ground, it's as bad, if not worse than ever. The discourse, the conversation in the media has become more balanced, I think, thanks in part to our work. But we, it's really a very, we're on a knife's edge still. It's a very dynamic situation. It could remain terrible. You know, we're, we have a police shortage of 500 police officers, at least in San Francisco, a shortage of at least 1,000 officers in Los Angeles. Police across the United States have retired early, resigned, have they've quit in droves. And so we're just in a overall crime and drug and homelessness crisis in the United States. And unlike every other developed society, we don't have a functioning mental health system. We don't have a psychiatric care system that works. And then when the police, since they were so demoralized and defunded, and now understaffed, they just don't enforce a lot of laws. So you start to see all these videos of people running around naked. There's a video that just went viral of a guy on the tracks in the New York subway system who's preventing a train for several hours. I mean, there's just just chaos is sort of breaking out in the society as a whole. And of course, we have no leadership. The president is obviously very old you know, in the liberal news media now are actually starting to talk about it as a problem. He went on a low, he went on a late night TV show earlier last week and was, he would sort of start to say things and then he couldn't finish his sentence. It's not good, yeah. <laughs> you know, for the leader of the free world to be like that. To be fair, I don't know if his policies would be any different because he was, he was never the sharpest tool in the democratic drawer, but clearly the, the feeling in the United States right now is of of being without leadership. Well, it's interesting with Joe Biden, is it? Because I suppose in the 90s and 80s, he was associated very much with the war on drugs and the Democratic Party's push to control the crack epidemic. And he was seen, you know, when he ran in 2020, criticisms of him were coming from the left. So, you know, he was saying he'd arrested more African-Americans than any other Democrat and all that sort of stuff. So he was seen as tough on drugs, but he hasn't really got a grip on this issue as president, has he? No, I mean, he, he did say, and just in direct response to the public opinion and the political, his low popularity, he did say we need to fund the police, not defund the police. So there's been that. But on drugs, he's been terrible. He's completely captured by George Soros and the organizations that George Soros funds. Soros famously would like to legalize these drugs. Soros is the money behind the radical left district attorneys of San Francisco, Philly, Los Angeles, all sorts of, I think maybe New York too, I can't remember, but all, all of these different cities. So he's been pretty terrible. You know, I mean, in some ways, I think we overemphasize Biden's 
personal failings, I think in truth, he reflects where the left is. He, he reflects the transition of the left away from being the Democrats, away from being a kind of moderate party to being a much more radical party than it was 20, 30 years ago. Mm. And it's particularly, I mean, the, the Republicans in the sort of Trump years, there were people in the Republican Party that thought a very sensible strategy for the party would be to target cities, because it has become very obvious to a lot of people who live in cities that they are almost entirely Democrat run, and it's not working very well. And so if the Republican Party could pose as somebody who can bring order and sort of restore civilization in parts of America where civilization is under threat, it would be a big vote winner for them. But that hasn't really happened, has it? Because the grip of the Democratic Party on municipalities is so strong. Is there anything that might change there? Or, or do you think it's, it's just cities are going to be democratic for the foreseeable future? Well, yeah, I mean, I think your, your question, you're sort of asking a predictive question. And, and I'm, I'm not very good at predictions. And I don't think most experts are mm. good at predictions, particularly around politics you know, which is a highly unpredictable business, even as we've seen two or four years out. Yeah. But let me say something about the dynamic that you're describing, which I think we can say something about from the past, which is that there is a very troubling dynamic, which is that the people who want to see greater order in the cities have the lowest tolerance for disorder and they are the first to leave. Yeah. So you can call them conservatives or you can call them, you know, moderate liberals or just people that have a higher need for social order. And so there is there's something that's called the curly effect, which I didn't actually write about in San Francisco, even though I was looking at it as a phenomenon. And it's named after a Boston mayor named Curly. And I believe it was the early 20th century. It doesn't matter. The idea basically was just that he was a terrible mayor, but he had support from a significant number of a big enough share of the population that then as the people that couldn't stand the disorder and the dysfunction left Boston, it reinforced his power. So it becomes a basically the idea is a reinforcing cycle here. And I don't think there's any question that that's been part of why California, why things have gotten worse in California and in progressive cities like Los Angeles, San Francisco, Seattle, Portland. I think my own political, my three month long political career, I think the reason we couldn't get from third to second had something to do with this, which is that, you know, we thought that we were gonna raise something closer to five to $10 million for our campaign. We raised 1.5 million. That just wasn't enough money you know, to, um, I mean, I'm very proud of the campaign we ran because we came in third, even though we, we basically spent under a half million dollars on advertising, which is, which in California is like spending nothing for a, you know, our, a, a state of 40 million people, our media markets are very expensive. So we basically spent nothing on advertising and came in third, but if we had spent, you know, I think if we had spent five to $10 million, we could have come in second. Well, we had a hard time raising that in part because the people that are capable of making the donations that you need to raise that kind of money don't believe in California anymore. <laughs> they uh, had, you know, a lot of them had moved to Miami and Austin and the places that you move if you want to get out of the chaos that is California. 
and the, out of the high tax burden as well. It's a very high tax state. You know, it's a premium state. People pay a lot of money to live here. So I think that the dynamic that you're asking about is the one that I spent a lot of time thinking about, which is how do you persuade, for lack of a better word, the bourgeoisie and to some extent, the kind of professional managerial class employees who are capable of, of affecting change. You know, since the normal dynamic, the famous old dynamic is that the new bourgeoisie, the new wealth replaces the old wealth. Rockefeller, Carnegie and Mellon, they make their money and then they say, well, we got to, you know, have a new political establishment. And they sort of, they go and, you know, create a new crop of politicians who then, you know, kind of create a new social order in those cities and they have new services and they improve the functioning of government. Well, now, if the bourgeoisie is globally mobile and hypermobile in the United States and they can just sell their homes in Los Angeles and move to Miami or Austin, then you can get a self-reinforcing spiral. Now, of course, you've got a countervailing tendency, which is that there are people that that's not everybody. And, and also there's also, if you have, if you have kids in school, I find that a lot of my supporters that's, you know, fun of me were people that had kids age, between ages like 10 and 18, where the kids were too young to pull out of their schools to move somewhere else. And these are folks that are committed to California. And then I think there's also a diehard group in California that just recognize what a spectacular state this is. I mean, I just, um, I live in Berkeley, but I went over to San Francisco for dinner two nights ago. And I mean, I've been here for almost 30 years, Freddie, and I'm still blown away by how beautiful San Francisco is. Cause I described the misery and the open drug scenes which have spread, but of course you can get away from it too. I mean, there's a whole cottage industry of journalists that think that they are debunking me by posting selfies of themselves, themselves in beautiful parts of San Francisco and saying, Schellenberger's wrong. <laughs> San Francisco is beautiful. <laughs> and of course it is. So it's a beautiful city and state. So my, my argument has always been, and it's why I'm staying here and why I ran for governor, is that this is premium state with the prettiest, greatest cities in the world. It has great, as we say in the United States, I don't know if you say it in Britain, California has good bones. Mm. San Francisco has great bones. Like if you can actually treat the sick people in the streets and enforce the laws, the cities would come back, you know, very, very quickly within a matter of, frankly, months, not years. Well, it was interesting to hear you talk about Carnegie and the way that sort of wealth helped America, because what a lot of people talk about in terms of California is Silicon Valley and the astronomical wealth that is being generated there. And that it seems to be making the making the problems of California worse because it's creating, some people call it a neo-feudal system, where you have a sort of surf class and they are very, very poor, extremely miserable. And you have a much more mobile, geographically mobile, socially mobile overlord class. And the middle class is, is vanishing. Is that an accurate summary of what's going on in, say, San Francisco? Yeah, terrifyingly accurate. I'm obsessed with this Hollywood movie that came out almost 10 years ago now called Elysium. I don't know if you ever saw it. It's uh, Matt Damon and Jodie Foster and the rich have, it's a sci-fi movie. And so the rich have fled earth and they live in a satellite spinning above the earth. And the earth is a kind of post-apocalyptic wasteland. And 
has an eerie resemblance to many parts of California because as you and your listeners may know, when you come to when you particularly San Francisco and Los Angeles, though I think it's also true of some other cities, but San Francisco and Los Angeles, the rich live in the hills. So they kind of live above the city and and so it's a very powerful visual and physical representation of the class hierarchy. And so there's an expression, it's a nasty expression, but nonetheless, probably accurate that that people say in San Francisco, which is that crime don't climb, meaning that the crime that you can escape the crime and the disorder by living on a hill. And so that is that there's a lot of reality to that and to that class divide. And I was asked in front of one of the big editorial boards, which is the the star chambers that interview you when you run for governor, they asked me, what is one thing that people don't know about California or that, that people don't, don't understand about it? And, it's, and my answer was that we have the highest poverty rate in the United States. And this is a fact that has been obfuscated because the proper way to measure poverty is to account for the cost of living. The cost of living in California is significantly higher than the cost of living in Mississippi. If you just look at the share of, of people in poverty without accounting for the cost of living, there's more poor people and there's a higher percentage of poverty in Mississippi. But if you do, as the Census Bureau recommends you do, and as any sensible person or economist would do and account for the cost of living, we have the highest poverty rate. So we have a gigantic underclass of service workers mostly but also farm workers, very small amount of manufacturing or, or heavy industry at this point, and a gigantic class as well of very wealthy people, many billionaires, and a middle class that is increasingly struggling and moving out of state. And there is a, I think there's an intuitive sense among people for why that's problematic for the functioning of a society. And in fact, it is. And there's a lot of reasons why it undermines societies, why it undermines democracies, why it's bad for civilization to have this high levels of inequality. And by the way, it's not I'm not a, you know, I'm not a socialist and I don't have a revenge view towards the rich. In other words, I don't like just think that it's bad that there's rich people. In fact, I think that in some ways it's a sign that your civilization is continuing to succeed that you have people with phenomenal amounts of wealth. I do think though that the hollowing out of the middle class and the existence of this huge disparity of just super uber wealthy people that are absolutely out of touch with the reality on earth, <laughs> that the people in the satellites live in Elysium and they have really, I mean, it's shocking the extent, I'm always shocked by how out of touch rich people are. You know, because they're interacting with people from the lower classes, they're the service workers and everything, but they don't really know how they think or they don't have a social interaction, a proper social interaction. And by the loss of that middle class, which has been so important to sustaining civilization for so long. But were you able to, for your campaign, your political campaign, were you able to attract rich people in Silicon Valley who, who want to change things? Were you able to generate some support there? Less than I had hoped. I mean, it's now public... And so I can talk about it. You know, the rules of this are that there are 
the big money donations have to go to an, a campaign and they call it an independent expenditure campaign that I, as a candidate, have no knowledge of and had no knowledge of. And so the donations would they have to come in from people that I knew prior to running and who believed in me prior to running. But it's now public that one of my main supporters or one of the main supporters, I should say, of that independent expenditure is David Sachs, who is part of what's called the PayPal Mafia. Mm -hmm. He was one of the original founders of PayPal. He's a very successful Silicon Valley billionaire, really terrific person. I haven't known him for very long, but he's very politically active and really cares about California. So very grateful to have his support. My other supporters were Silicon Valley and some financial, successful financial folks. But there were other people who I think we had hoped would give significantly more money from Silicon Valley who did not. And that was due to a combination of some of the kind of legal and financial restrictions, which are really quite onerous and difficult to manage in California. I think it's also due to the fact that we just ran out of time. I got into the race, by the way, super, super late. To give you a sense of it, people start running for political office in California like two years before the election. I kid you not, like two years ahead of time. I decided to run at the very last minute in February and announce my candidacy in early March. So we only had three months and I appeared on Bill Maher, who's a huge TV figure in the United States, you know, like five days before the election. So I do now get recognized on the street. I have a quarter million Twitter followers. I, I'm what you might call almost famous, but not famous enough. And so the only way you can buy the fame that you need to become elected to the fifth largest economy in the world is to have that five or $10 million and we couldn't raise it. But I do think that this other issue that, we, that we've been talking about, which is I think the lack of commitment to California and the Elysium problem, or you know, the sociologists have a, a wonderful description of this. They talk about there being somewhere people and anywhere people. Somewhere people are service workers and manual laborers and teachers and people who have to go to work at an institution or at a physical location. But then there's anywhere people, which includes you and me, but includes, I think, the affluent. They can work anywhere. They can trade stocks. They can build a dot-com company. They can, you know, do cryptocurrency. They can do it from a, a, their yacht in the middle of the ocean, or they can do it from New Zealand, or they can do it from New York City or Miami or, or, or London or wherever. And those folks, I fear, don't have enough commitment and enough roots in specific places. Now, again, that's counteracted by the fact that people still have families and their kids still need to go to school, and those kids need to be in social relationships in the schools. But nonetheless, I think it is one of the central challenges of saving civilization in the abstract and running it for political office in the concrete. Well, Michael, we better wrap it up there. But thank you so much for coming on. Are you going to are you going to keep running? Are you going to run again? Oh, no idea. I mean, like I said, I don't have to decide that for two more years. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if I do run again, I think it'd be irresponsible to wait three months beforehand to announce. So if I do run again, I'll make a decision this time you know, more like two years before the election, but... I thought we might just get an Americano scoop there. But, uh, <laughs> the end. Yeah, but <laughs> Thank you very much for coming on. It's been a, a really great honour to talk to you and to listen to your thoughts and your, your view of the world. And uh, good luck saving civilization. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. 
And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review. Thank you.